0: RPN, The Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection. All new starships in a larger size format and officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and receive the USS Shinjo for only $9.95 with free shipping. For details, visit eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships.
1: Mission Log. A Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast Episode 297 Rivals
2: Wow. You, me, what are the odds... It's Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John
0: Champion. Each week, we roll the dice on another episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for
2: messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether it holds up today. This week, Rivals. The one where O'Brien squares off against Bashir, Principal Snyder squares off against Prince Humperdink, and Kira squares off against a stairwell. John's got trivia coming up in a moment, but first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323 is the phone number to call. 323 Our email address is at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discovered Documents, is at MissionLogPodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And with that, we turn things over to the Trivia King. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, please say hey again to Mr. John Champion.
0: Well, hello again. Back to all of you. Trivia for today's episode, Rivals. The story is by Jim Trombetta and Michael Piller. Jim, we mentioned before, since he got the story credit on The Forsaken, and he had been kicking around this story as a pitch since season one. Michael Piller bought it, but he knew it would need some work. So the script duties went to Joe Manoski. Joe, of course, had been around since TNG, contributing a lot there. His first DS9 credit was Dramatis Personae, and he has just two more credits on this show before we catch up with him again on Voyager. Definitely a lot of script changes in this one. Originally, this would have been centered on Quark, as he had a device that gave him great luck. Martus was added to the story later, and it was even considered that he would be a regular or recurring character as a foil for Quark. And one other thing about Martus... It was considered at one point to make him Guinan's son, and they wanted Whoopi in a crossover appearance, but she wasn't available. So all the references to Whoopi Goldberg, or to Guinan specifically, were cut out of the script. This was directed by David Livingston. Uh, Rules of Acquisition was the most recent of his episodes that we discussed. And of course, David's is a familiar name since he has been around since the beginning of TNG. I hope you like that racquetball set. Uh, it's the only time you're going to see it. <laughs> this is an overlay for the Hollow Suite. And come to think of it, why would O'Brien build a racquetball court when the Hollow Suite could just become one whenever he needs it? But yes, the Wait. physical.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I have an answer to that question. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, the, the Hollow Suite costs money per minute. Apparently, oh, yeah. Because you know, yeah. Quark owns that. Uh, They've got a station that can accommodate 7,000 people. There are 300 people on it. I don't understand why it doesn't have racquetball courts all over the place.
0: You could have a racquetball court for every person on DS9.
2: (laughs) You could. (laughs) There's a a room for Keiko. There's a room for Miles. There's a room for Molly. And Mm -hmm. then uh, he's put in a racquetball court because there's that much room on Deep Space Nine.
0: Yep. Yeah, I like that idea. Now, I mentioned Gynen, of course, Elorians, uh, and Gynen is the only one that we've met so far. Uh, like Soren, though, well, we, we haven't met Soren since we haven't actually gotten to Generations. That movie would be out a full 11 months after this episode aired. So just to, to flesh out the whole story of the Elorians, so far, all we know about when this episode aired was Gynen. Let's talk about guest stars. Uh Rowana is played by Barbara Boson. Now, genre fans may know her from The Last Starfighter as Alex's mom, Jane, uh, but she is best known for playing Faye Ferrillo on Hill Street Blues, a role that got her five Emmy nominations. She earned another nomination for co-starring in the miniseries Murder One, Diary of a Serial Killer. That's the end of her professional on-screen credits, Though she's made a few appearances as herself in documentaries, and has racked up a couple of writing credits as well, she was married to Stephen Botchko. Alcia is played by Kay Callan. Kay started in theater, but hit the ground running with a number of TV appearances since the early 70s. She really hasn't let up since. You may have seen her in How I Met Your Mother or Carnival. This one's for you, Ken. She was in Moonlighting. Nice. She is also well-known for playing Martha Kent in Lois and Clark. Albert Henderson makes a brief appearance as the snoring alien cause. Albert started his professional on-camera career later than most actors. He was born in 1915, and his first credit comes in 1957. Now, things picked up from there, and by the early 60s, he had a recurring role as Officer O'Hara on Car 54, Where Are You? Guest appearances continued. Kojak, Lou Grant, Chips. He even had roles in Big Top Pee Wee and Leaving Las Vegas. We lost Albert in 2004. Finally, Chris Sarandon plays Martus Mazur. Then and now, Chris Sarandon is a pretty well known actor with an extensive resume. I can only highlight a few of those here. He was Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Bride. In the TV movie The Day Christ Died, he was, uh, Christ. He's probably best known for playing the vampire next door Jerry Dandridge in Fright Night, a role so identified with him that he voiced the character in a video game and then had a cameo as J.D. in the 2011 remake. You may have heard of his first wife, Susan Sarandon, who got her first role when he brought her along to an audition. He is currently married to Joanna Gleason, which makes him Monty Hall's son-in-law.
1: Rarely do we see rivalries like this one. The Red Sox versus the Yankees. Ali versus Frazier. Quark versus Martis Major.
2: Prologue. An unlikely pair of drinking buddies is chatting it up upstairs at Quark's. She's an older woman about to hit big on a mining investment. It's a sure thing. And she can't believe she's telling the young man to whom she's speaking her secret plan. Anyway, there's just so much to do. And her young, charismatic drinking buddy offers to help, right before Odo takes him in, for trying to take her in. Mardis Mejour is a refugee from the El-Aryan system. He's a listener, and a con artist. Like that old couple Odo talked to, who gave Martus their financial access codes, accounts he plundered for his own gain. The conversation ends with Mardis in a holding cell. Act 1. In the depths of DS9, Miles O'Brien is headed to the 24th century racquetball court he's built. He's hoped to attract other players. He's got one, Julian Bashir. Turns out he was a star player at Starfleet Academy. Younger than Miles, and better in his day than Miles ever was, it looks like the doctor is about to clean the court with the engineer. In his holding cell, Mardis can get no rest. The old guy sharing his cell snores loudly. Then seems to have died. But he's not dead. Not yet. He's got a hard luck story that Mardis, the listener, does not want to hear. But the old guy's got something shiny. A gambling device. It piques the listener's interest for a moment, though he doesn't really get the connection between this toy and the old cellmate losing everything he ever had. It all comes down to luck, they agree. Another play, though, and the old guy's face lights up. He won, and now he's dead. Martis takes possession of the gambling device, then calls out to Odo about the dead guy in his cell. Act 2. Miles is home from his game with Julian, and yeah, he lost. Big time. Keiko's about as sympathetic as we've come to expect. Her response to his complaining basically boils down to, Face it, dude. You're old. But that doesn't do it for Miles. He looks forward to a rematch. At the replimat, Julian is describing the match to Dax. Yeah, he thought Miles might drop dead during their match, like right there, on the court. At least it's over, says Dax, though Julian says it's just beginning. Miles wants a rematch, and it breaks Julian's heart. He likes and respects Miles. He doesn't want him to feel bad. Back in the holding cell, Martis keeps winning on the toy he lifted off the dead cellmate. For all the good it does... He does have a bit of luck, though. The old couple, Martis Swindled, they've decided not to press charges. Then Martis is free to go. And go he does, straight to Quark's. He wants a drink, though he's got no money. So they gamble. A free drink against the toy that Mardis has. And Martis wins. But he shows Quark the toy anyway. A push of the button. And Quark loses. And Martis wins again. And Quark is intrigued. He offers to buy the gambling device off Martis, but he's a bit too eager. Martis knows now that he's got something good. Leaving Quark's with the gambling device still in his possession, Martis comes across a shop across from Quark's. The widow who owns it is shutting down. No business is fine. It's just tough to work alone. And she senses that Martis, the listener, understands what she's saying. Back on the racquetball court, Miles and Julian are playing again, and hey, Miles is winning! Of course, Miles is also not stupid. He takes the doctor to task for obviously throwing the game in the engineer's favor. Next time, play your best game, or don't play. Back on the promenade, the conversation between the listener and the widow has escalated quickly. It's ended with her shop turned into a sort of bar-casino establishment directly across from Quark's. Act 3. Quark is obviously not happy about his new rival, complaining to Cisco that he has a contract, but that contract was with the Cardassians, so nobody cares. Business is booming at Martis Bar, though there's a sad face in the crowd. Remember the woman with the mining investment from the prologue? She's run into trouble, and needs a lot of money to complete her investment. But the return will be 10 times the investment. Martis says he'll see what he can do. His new employee, Rom, don't ask, is worried that Quark might try to taint the food in Martis' bar. Though Martis says, don't worry, he's had an extraordinary run of luck lately. Speaking of luck, remember that toy? The one Martis got off the dead guy in his holding cell? The one Quark was a little too eager to snag? Martis has had a bunch of them replicated, but bigger. They're all over the bar, and people are all over them. Enjoying the spoils, Martis starts to get cozy with the hostess when the widow with whom he partnered for the bar comes in. Yeah, in case you didn't know, Martis is shady, though the widow doesn't see it. In fact, she's just accepted his proposal for marriage. In Ops, Luck's running hot and cold. Dax all of a sudden has a problem basically solve itself, while Kira keeps bumping into stuff and having her computer crash. Cisco says he's been hearing a lot of bad luck stories in the last few hours. In fact, they just got word that many people with minor injuries are turning up in the infirmary. Meanwhile, things are dead as dead at Quark's, so he's trying something new listening to his clients. Or client. Or miles. Miles just lost another racquetball match to Julian, and that's almost where Quark's listening ends. In his head, he's hearing a way to get his patrons back. Across the way, those giant gambling machines? Everyone just won on them. Everyone. And Quark's plan for a comeback continues. Luck seems to be shifting on Deep Space Nine. Act 4. So it turns out Quark was sort of listening to Miles... He's put together a competition between Miles and Julian, a racquetball rematch, though he failed to tell the contestants. But they can't say no because Quark has said that half the house's winnings will go to the Bajoran Fund for Orphans. Seriously, they can't say no. In the meantime, the tables are open and Quark is back in business. Back in ops, they've noted the shift in luck as well. The problem Dax had, it's back. Meanwhile, a completely new group of people has wandered into the infirmary with bumps and bruises. To Sisko and Dax, it seems like too many coincidences to be coincidental. Dax will dig into it. Meanwhile, things are dead as dead at Martis bar. His luck has run out. The customers are gone, and oh, he's busted. The widow catches Martis canoodling with the hostess. His one shot... He'll invest in that mining plan presented by the elderly woman from the prologue. Oh, she's so grateful, and Mardis feels his luck turning, even if the big toys on the bar indicate otherwise. Act 5. Miles and Julian are gearing up for their game, though Quark's trying to tilt the odds. He wasn't poisoning Julian exactly, but there was an attempt to administer an anesthetic to slow him down. No one is betting on miles. Quark figured he would, then dose the doctor and reap the winnings. You know, for the orphans. If not for them, Julian might back out. Either way, he will play, but without the anesthetic. Marnus's luck has gone from bad to worse. The elderly woman with the mining investment. She's not back yet. With his money. Back in Ops, Dax has found something, though what it means, she's not sure. A scan of solar neutrinos shows a majority of them spinning in one direction. Statistically, half of them should be spinning one way, and the other half the other. Outside the station, the neutrinos are normal. Inside, they're being weird. She doesn't think the neutrinos are causing the strange runs of luck. Rather, whatever's causing the strange luck seems to be affecting things on a molecular level. It's also affecting things on the racquetball court. The match between Julian and Miles is underway, and Miles is on fire. He seriously cannot lose. Even if he tries. Julian is missing ridiculously easy shots, and his racket just broke. On its own. Meanwhile, the ball just keeps coming back to Miles. Practically on its own. He calls for Dax and Cisco to come check it out. Miles says the way the ball's behaving is impossible, though Dax says it's not impossible, just highly improbable. Whatever's affecting everything is affecting everything. So they'll use the solar neutrinos to figure out where the heart of the improbability anomaly is centered. And that leads them to Martis' bar. The toys, the things that Martis had replicated a few times over in larger form without knowing what they were or how they worked... They're altering the laws of probability all over the station. So Cisco and Dax destroy them. And Martis is taken back into custody, not for having the machines, but because the couple he swindled has had a change of heart, they will press charges for his having swindled them. One more bit of luck, though. Martis gets to see his partner in the mining operation again, as she is thrown into a cell of her own. For defrauding would-be investors things could be worse for martis quark's willing to give martis a bit of money if he'll leave ds9 the end
0: there's so much going on there ken but i i have just uh, three words okay uh bashir racquetball outfit all right i to me uh cosplay at some upcoming convention
2: don't know which one don't know where you can absolutely see that the person who was designing for him designed for jake last week as well oh yeah yeah which yeah, that, that sort of like green skin tight well green to other green to blue skin tight thing that um Sirac was wearing last week yeah 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 it's um yeah it's an outfit you're going to try to pull it off? I don't mean pull it I, off. I mean, are you going to try to pull oh, it off. Oh, you on? mean to wear it. Yeah, right. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll see what I can do. I don't know.
2: It'll definitely be you before me.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Deal. Um, now, uh, uh, there's a food moment in here that uh, needs to go recognized. Uh, Bashir has replicated what looks kind of like a chicken patty sandwich. Might be tofu. I don't know, but it's a patty of some sort on bread, which is fine and everything. I, I, I just wondered uh, about them doing a bit in the dialogue about him always going over to get the empty ketchup bottles and he's got to go through like three until he gets one that works also just need to point out those were very clearly space ketchup bottles and now i want one.
2: First of all i'm not sure it was ketchup
0: <laughs> uh look it, it could have been katsu sauce could have been yamak sauce we don't know could have been yeah could have been
2: uh could have been yeah. barbecue sauce that was actually what I was thinking maybe because I went to a barbecue joint earlier this week and that's what's on my mind oh you did what's weird to me though is you replicate a sandwich replicate condiments
0: Right. Yes. In the exact amount that you want on that chicken
2: sandwich. Right. In fact, I would think hopefully by the 23rd century, 24th century, certainly you should be able to go, hey, it's me, Julian. Give me the usual. And it would just give you Mm -hmm. exactly what you want, exactly the way you want it, as opposed to having to wander around because they don't have cooks. Whose job is it to refill the ketchup bottles? And I know. And like, man, if you can't even trust people to cook food. Ugh, I just I don't know many bad ideas abound.
0: I just but sometimes those replicators we don't know what to expect it's like how many times on next gen did somebody go up and just say water and and the computers I like, uh, you know here's a little bit here's a lot right Julian could have said ketchup and the computers just like here's nine gallons of ketchup
2: that's true you know? yeah. Yeah. You have to be like Riker, though, and, and order it precisely. Although I don't remember anybody ever saying, "Oh, and be sure it's in a glass."
0: Right, <laughs> precisely. It just come flowing out of the out of the replicator.
2: Right, could happen. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, uh, Quark has a good line. Uh, don't trust a man wearing a better suit than your own. Uh, interesting line. Interesting line of reasoning. I just wondered if there's a logical limit to that particular rule of acquisition. Like you have to hit a point. You have to hit peak suit at some point where uh, you're not going to meet somebody wearing a suit better than your own.
2: Yeah. bring it, bring it to uh, today's times. Somebody going into Tiffany's to buy something is going to be dressed nicer than somebody working behind the counter at Tiffany's. Do Mm -hmm. do you throw them out?
0: No, certainly, (laughs) certainly not. Yeah. I
2: wouldn't think so. Yeah.
0: Um, There's another funny bit. I mean, uh, Cork cornering Bashir and O'Brien into their match, uh, you know, just basically announcing it. They're standing there. We didn't agree to this. And they just they they keep rolling with it. Uh, But honestly, if it came down to the blankets for the uh, Bajoran orphans, all they had to say was, no, replicator, give me 500 blankets.
2: (laughs) Right. You'd think so.
0: Done. Done. The monks are happy. Uh, Bashir and O'Brien are happy. Yeah works not happy but who cares
2: is it is it like a greed thing is it just the monks automatically want more sure we could ask for this but you know somebody sacrificing for it is it makes it that much warmer makes it that much better (laughs) yeah
0: let's let's see a battle royale so we can tell these kids about it when they get their blankets yeah wouldn't that
2: wouldn't that be absolutely fantastic uh speaking of greed and money and things I was confused by one thing that happened. And I, I, I said, you know, don't ask why Rom was working for Mardis pretty much because it's insignificant. It does not matter at all. But there was one thing that confused me. Um, Rom's all upset because, you know, Mardis gave away all the money that they made because he was supposed to get a quarter of it. A quarter of the profits is what Rom says. And, um, and Mardis says, I promised you one quarter of the profits after expenses, which is called profits. Right, I mean, because <laughs> right, it's revenue right. minus expenses yeah. equals profits. Now, I know there's other stuff there, right? But if you promise somebody a quarter of the profits, you don't then go, oh, but there's overhead because no, no profit is you've already paid for overhead. You've it's already paid still for the leftover, Yeah, right. You've paid for everything. And uh, it struck me as kind of weird. I would think e- even a Ferengi of, of ROM's intellect should know, <laughs> hang on a second. <laughs> that is profit. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, clearly, Martis was an accountant for a major Hollywood studio, because that, that's how you do it. You can say this movie cost $100 million. It made $500 million, but now this movie cost $550 million. Right.
2: We lost $0. $0.5 million. How? Mm-hmm. How did you do that yeah. exactly? No, <laughs> right. oh, yeah. you wouldn't understand. We'll yeah, just keep it's, making uh, more. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, well, it was profits <laughs> before expenses.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally different thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think in this episode, we maybe have my favorite scene to date at home with the O'Briens. Mm-hmm. Win or lose, tonight we celebrate it. It is actually uh, personal and tender and somewhat real. And it's not just them bickering over food or socks mm-hmm. or something like that. They, they kind of they played it down a little.
2: I had a weird thing, though, and I don't know if this is good or bad to... Well, whatever. It is what it is. Remember the scene where, um, where Ro Laren and Picard as Galen were in the bar and they weren't doing anything intimate, but they were supposed to be yes. playing sort of an intimate moment and you really felt an intimacy between them. Right. That kiss between, uh, Miles and Keiko could have been a kiss between a five year old and his grandma. Mm-hmm. There was just, I mean, yeah. it, and it's weird to me because they've been playing these characters for a very long time and actually spoke to how often we don't get real emotion from them. We get bickering yeah. from them. Yeah. That said, you're right. The rest of that scene was actually fantastic. But I kept watching The Kiss going, it's like they just met on set.
0: Well, maybe, maybe that's just the kind of relationship they have maybe so. miles and and Keiko maybe, right. yeah,
2: it's just it's, it's uh, possible know, yeah
0: what they're like um i a two part observation here first of all, did O'Brien just straight up break that camera on the station?
2: I don't think so, but okay
0: okay because it looks like he he goes toward it with his racket and then the next thing is just static
2: well, he said he was cutting the transmission though so I assume there's a button there like um okay, yeah you know, like I've got a button that will turn off this microphone. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yes. Don't you make do. me yeah. use it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or make he me, didn't whatever. Do it,
0: it, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't like. Uh, uh, hang on, Quark. I'm going to mute this. He like. No, he goes at it with a racket. So I maybe maybe he didn't. Maybe he's a little more respectful of the stuff. But second of all, when that happened, when he either broke or cut the feed, um, the image on the screen in Quarks is either is either perfectly clear,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is cool. Uh, or it's a screensaver that looks exactly like the orange art panel behind it,
2: which is equally cool. Which is also cool, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That'd be neat, yeah. actually, because then you could walk behind it and be like, look, guys, I'm just ahead. <laughs> 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 or whatever. I always sort of assumed, though, yeah. it was just a projection on glass, sort of like the uh, the Phillips uh, Day of Glass. Is it Phillips? Not Phillips. Who was no, that? Corning. Corning has oh, okay. a video on YouTube that's um, been on there for like 10 years as we record this, I think. But it's an amazing thing called the Day of Glass. And it had all these different like things that, you know, in the future you'll be able to do with glass. <laughs> Again, certainly by the 24th century, you should be able to have a screen that just sort of goes blank and has a window.
0: Yeah, yeah. That was very neat. Yeah. And uh, one of my favorite uh, lines in this episode, uh, another rule of acquisition, dignity and an empty sack is worth the sack.
2: That is uh, rule of acquisition number 109 for those of you keeping score at home.
1: Rarely do we see toys as addictive as the one in this episode Cup and Ball, Rubik's Cube, that thing Marta stole and mindlessly reproduced.
2: John and I will square off on Rivals in a moment, but first... But first, a word from
0: Eagle Moss, the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection, flying in to take over all the flat surfaces in your home or office. I I sit here in front of a very large desk where I could easily fit, I, I don't know, 70, 80 little starships. That's what you should do as well. It'd be a perfect place to put some starships.
2: I sit here with a bunch of starships behind me excellent starships they are too officially authorized by cbs studios made from quality solid materials diecast metal and abs materials they are of course based on the cg models used in the production of star trek discovery which of course is a fantastic thing to base them on oh sure you could base them on the models from star trek to the wrath of khan but then they wouldn't be discovery starships now would they
0: good point that is so i'm glad they thought of that before we had to (laughs) these are big ships uh, starting with the USS Shenzhou NCC-1227. is about eight inches from front to back. That's a pretty big ship. Comes with a display base. Also comes with that collector's magazine featuring behind-the-scenes info and original design sketches and a breakdown of the technology used on board.
2: Now, the first ship in the collection, the USS Shenzhou NCC-1227, is available to subscribers for only $9.95 with free shipping. You go to EagleMoss.com slash Discovery Starships to grab that.
0: And additional ships come every month, including the iconic USS Discovery, of course, USS Europa, the new Vulcan Cruiser, that would be the Car class, and that newly imagined Klingon Bird of Prey. They will come to you every month at an exclusive 20% discount off the standard retail price, also with free shipping.
2: Subscribers are also entitled to free gifts worth over $100, and you can cancel your subscription at any time. For full details, go to EagleMoss.com discoverystarships Discovery Starships. Now, if subscribing's not your thing, if there's a particular ship you want instead, you can actually shop piece by piece. For that, you go to shop.EagleMoss.com, or you can go to your local comic book shop. Uh, you'll be picking them up there for the regular price of $54.95.
0: But, again, to subscribe, go to EagleMoss.com slash Discovery Starships. And a huge thanks to EagleMoss for sponsoring
2: this week's show. Is it for your thoughts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that's the, the fifth time we've referenced that uh, I think so, but it's so there. worth
2: it. I love that. Yeah. yeah. It's absolutely fantastic.
0: 10,000 of them here, but uh, only one for Michael Burnham's thoughts. Like how they tied that little thing in, you know?
2: I don't even, even know who Michael Burnham is. I know. She's from like a... Here's what's weird, actually. So let's do that really quickly. So the first time chron- chronologically that we've heard the word Isic would be when Michael Burnham says to somebody in Star Trek Discovery, Isik for your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they're like, "What's well, an And she's like, "I got no clue." Right. But then, flash forward a hundred years to Deep Space Nine, which was written twenty-five years before Discovery <laughs> was, and an is actually a going form of currency. So either she just hadn't heard of that particular form of currency. Or somebody was like, well, okay, the only thing that makes sense is an ISIC for your thoughts. Okay, <laughs> yeah. that must be a form of currency. Why don't we just make one, and then we'll start people trading it that way so that this phrase actually makes a bit of sense. I love that idea.
0: I like mold the real world to match the, the linguistic construct. I think that's
2: great. That's, uh, <laughs> it seems a bit ludicrous. Here's what was actually weird to me about that whole ISIC thing, though, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Quark is willing to negotiate with an enemy, a rival, one might say, Mm -hmm. uh, Quark is willing to negotiate with a rival. Here's how many is I will pay you to get out of town. Yeah. Pell with whom he was maybe in love gets a set amount and that's it. And listen, man up. I believe he actually said, (laughs) he didn't say those words, but he said, man up, you're going to go around acting like a dude, take this like a dude and get out of here. Mm hmm. It just struck me as kind of a, it struck me as interesting and odd. I will also tell you that I pulled a bit of a John Champion. Oh, did you know? I went online and tried to figure out what the conversion rate uh latnum to isic would be.
0: Oh, see, now that that's funny because if I had to guess and I did not pull a John Champion and look that up, but if i had to guess, I'm just going to say like 10,000 isics to like a half a bar of Latinum. I I just I want to completely overinflate it's worth.
2: Okay. Well, now here's what I actually found out. First of all, nobody's done a conversion. Okay. So now's your chance. All right. But the other thing I found out is you say a bar of latinum as if a bar of latinum is actually uh, the going rate. There are, there are strips. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. There are slips and slips. then there are strips yep. and then there are bars and then there are bricks. Oh right. And right. I have not I have not been keeping up with how much was offered for what at any given time. Like did he offer her did he offer Pell strips of Latinum? Did he offer her slips or did he offer her bars?
0: I, I think he offered Pell bars, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go with slips being the uh, the, the, the conversion for Isix and again I'm like ten thousand Isix for like a half a slip of latinum. I just want it to be worthless. I don't know. I just in this episode I do.
2: Except it's not worthless because the Chris Sarandon character said he would take 15 to leave. And then he was like, well, 12, because, you know, I got to eat. And then he was like, OK, 800, because I have my dignity. And that's where we <laughs> find out that, you know, dignity in the sack is worth the sack. Yeah. R- rule of acquisition number 109. But don't very, good, very
0: good. Well, we don't know where he's going. He might be like taking the cheap route. He just he may have no concept. I just love the idea of completely different cultures from completely remember different parts of the galaxy just have no no good way at all to understand the value that each other places on something
2: except he didn't have a box of isx to give to did. Um, yeah. to give to the widow yeah, not because yeah. The, there were I'll, there were two I'll widows except one mm-hmm. wasn't actually I'll see you, thank yeah. you one wasn't actually a widow I think or she may have been but she was also a con artist saw that coming a mile away by the way yeah that
0: yeah uh, because you and I both saw dirty rotten scoundrels so
2: Oh man, mm-hmm. yeah. Like when it came out, I think it mm-hmm. was a long time ago for me.
0: But yeah, but, uh, just uh, all right, well, we'll save that for the next segment because why don't we? I, I just, why don't yeah, we? yeah? yeah. Um, but let's talk about the game. Let's talk about the actual gambling game that they have. Um, I, I love, I love the simplicity of the game because we as the audience have no idea how it works, and we don't need to. We don't need to at all. There's something so pure and relatable about that very simple reward of winning absolutely nothing of substance by doing nothing. So it's like playing a a simple game on your phone. You know, some games are tough and they require skill or strategy. Others just reward you for basically being there. Uh, And they just show you lights and sounds like, oh, you launched this game here. Here's some sounds. Here's some lights. Good job. You, You did a great job at that launching this app.
2: Wow. I kind of want that app now.
0: So right, let's make it and let's sell it for $10,000. Oh, somebody redid <laughs> that and it got pulled.
2: Or yeah. some, we can sell it for some missings, maybe.
0: Yeah, there you go. Yeah. But, but I, you know, as far as... It's a clever thing that as far as production goes, all you have to do is show here's a thing that lights up and people feel rewarded when they get it or they feel disappointed when they don't get it. So dramatically... It works perfectly. Mm -hmm. But there was something metaphorically that I really liked about it that's just it's very easy to get sucked into the emotion of winning or losing something, whether you are playing something that has required a lot of effort and a lot of skill or something that requires absolutely nothing. Out of You, you know, we, mm-hmm. we've talked on our show before about uh, that fad of the Tamagotchi, where it's just a little computer chip with a really cheap LCD screen. And all it wants you to do is push a button when it tries to get your attention. And that's it. And, and you get rewarded for doing that. Or you get disappointed when your little Tamagotchi quote unquote animal Dies,
2: <laughs> you know? that's, that's not real. That's not completely fair, though, because there were rules to the Tamagotchi thing, right? And it was supposed to be like you're keeping a thing alive, kind of like kind of like having a plant.
0: But you're not because it's it's a keychain.
2: Well, right, <laughs> but, but it's a series of. I I sort of see what you're saying, although I mean I don't know why I'm defending the Tamagotchi. I don't really care. <laughs> That much, except that it was, I mean, that it was, you know, setting certain parameters in which to play, as opposed to this thing, which really was just, you know, you know push a button and this happens.
0: Now, now, now here's the thing, though. Could, could we put wagering on the Tamagotchi? Then then we introduce a whole other sure. level that's more akin, more akin to this episode, where you're like, oh, uh, $10,000 says I keep my Tamagotchi.
2: I will bet you real lives were actually wagered on the Tamagotchi. <laughs> Tell you what, Susie. You keep that alive for a week, then we'll talk about a hamster. Yes. You yes. know that has to have happened. So Good I would say call. there was a lot of wagering on the Tamagotchi, just not for uh, not for anything as valuable as an isic. Yeah, just, yeah. you know, living things. Um, can we talk, by the way, about... So... I almost brought this up last week, actually. So, so you've got the Scria come to town, right? Well, DS9, which is like a town, except with almost no people in it. Mm-hmm. You got the Scria come to town, and Cisco's like, Yeah, well, I can't understand a word they're saying. And they're, you know, kind of, they're being kind of weird. I know I will feed them. And you said, Well, so it's like giving breadsticks to somebody who's gluten intolerant. <laughs> right. My assumption was that, that there's something about the food replicator that will not let you, um, and yeah, produce something poisonous. We talked about this before, too, with, like, the whole pufferfish thing. This is it the pufferfish? Where it's like, mm-hmm. if you eat the mm-hmm. liver of it, then you die, but you eat the rest of it, so, you're okay. Right. Yeah. on wow. height. <laughs> I always assume that there's something in there that's going to keep people from killing themselves, but you can go to the replicator and, say, make this machine, and there's no part of the replicator that's reading it going, uh, you know, this is going to mess, I mean, potentially mess things up for people, right? Mm-hmm. You can just take something mm-hmm. to the replicator like, like, could, could Sulu take one of the projectile weapons that he loves so much sometimes, mm. depending on which episode of Star Trek you're talking about? Could he take one of those to the replicator and replicate a hundred guns? Would, Apparently. would, would the, would the replicator, well, okay. Or are there parameters where the replicator won't do something where it knows that the thing is potentially dangerous, so it won't replicate that, but you stick this thing in there, and, and you know, you're know you like, well, I got no idea what this thing does, and the replicator's like, yeah, me neither. Let's make 20.
0: <laughs> it seems like kind of an all-or-nothing proposition, though, because here's the thing. When it just comes to the food thing, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, A, that computer would have to accommodate for... Every possible compound that it could create mm-hmm. spread out over every possible biology that would consume it. Again, mm-hmm. we know nothing about the screens and it's absolutely zero. We can't even talk to them to say, Hey, are you gluten intolerant? Yeah. Uh, too bad. Here are some breadsticks. So there's really no way to know. And if you keep going down that, that, again, the logical extent of it, well, all food can be poison. If you have too much of it, the the LD50 of water is however much water will kill half the population if they drink too much of it. Hmm. Um, it, it, You know, so there's it it really would be almost impossible to tell. So maybe at that point, whoever created the replicator is like, look, uh, either this thing will create food and it will have to create all the food or objects you want to create or it's got to create nothing because there's there 's really not a good way to accommodate for all the safety protocols for every possible use of this machine
2: see my assumption on the on the food part of the replicator was that it was just basically making scop single celled organic protein right hmm. and then just finding ways to flavor it. But, you know, maybe chemical ways that uh, my assumption is they've sort of solved the whole thing of we're not going to kill you. I mean, yes, if you eat too much of anything, you can kill yourself. So I'm not thinking even like <laughs> yes. poisonous. It's just like, you know, you you can actually do yourself in by, by overdoing anything. Um. Yeah, I'm really just confused by a machine that'll let you make a machine that'll kill everything.
0: See, I, I in my mind, the replicator is uh, for food anyway. Because really, I'm I'm only concerned about the food here. I know this about yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, my impression of it is that I take I, I take a, a recipe, or I take the original food thing that got cooked, and I say, "Here, computer, map this, break this down essentially like a transporter, transporter mm-hmm. replicator technology. Very close. Now, figure out how to reproduce that exactly." sell by sell, make this thing. And it it gets to make that thing again. It's not, it's not doing like the old Steve Martin joke where like you go to uh, the the fast food place and it just, you know, everything is in a vat and cheeseburger, fries, here's your change, everything scooped out of that same vat. Yeah. Yeah. Other things to talk about here. Let's talk about Odo.
2: Okay. Well, we got, we got, we got sidetracked, but okay. Oh, he did. Well, I mean, you (laughs) were talking about the food thing. I'm saying it's weird to me that you could make a machine that would make other machines without knowing what those machines do. I mean, like again, you order like you order a cheeseburger and you give that to somebody who's lactose intolerant. Let's say it's exactly like what you're talking about. You order a cheeseburger. You give that to somebody who's lactose intolerant. That's on you. The machine gave you exactly what you asked for. Right. Should you be able to ask a machine for something that you have no idea what it is, the machine has no idea what it is, it may have ramifications or yeah, ramifications that nobody's considering, but the machine's just like, oh, well, I guess we're doing this now.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you shouldn't want that, but I, I, I think that's kind of where we are. The machine's just going to make the thing that you ask, hey, garbage in, garbage
2: out. You You know, know. I I was thinking that term exactly. Literally. Yeah, but for something else, which I'll tell you Mm. about another time. That's not for here. (laughs) Okay. right. so you wanted to talk about Odo. I'm sorry to distract us from the distraction. Odo, sir. No,
0: that's fine. Odo. So, uh, at the beginning of the episode, uh, he, he arrests martis Mm -hmm. well maybe not formally but odo can just throw people in the brig apparently at will seems like there is yeah there's a complaint but we we don't really know the details of that complaint Mm -hmm. um and and otherwise martis is a sort of a guy who's suspicious Mm -hmm. so odo's just like yeah i'm just going to throw in their brig because that's what i get to do here (laughs) i i mean it's
2: well yeah he is wearing a bajoran uniform Deep, Deep Space Nine yeah. is actually under the purview of Bajor, correct? Correct. All right. Yeah. So I guess he he's like a deputy, but Cisco is
0: still the the XO,
2: right? Well, I mean, like if you had a if you had a building on the corner of you know twenty eighth and eighth in New York City, I'm not sure if there is a twenty eighth and eighth, by the way, but I, there is. Yeah. If you had a building on the corner of twenty eighth and eighth, you might be the person who runs that building, but you know if somebody does something wrong, you call the cops. Odo's mm. the cop there. Okay. Yeah. Cisco yeah. runs the station, but I mean he's running facilities for all intents and purposes, right? And then doing the the Federation stuff that needs to be federated, the Starfleet stuff that needs to be Starfleeted. Right. Um, but like Odo is Odo is is law and order.
0: Yeah, and it seems like his law and order is still kind of left over from the Cardassian period. And maybe hey, maybe there are similarities to the way that Bajoran law and order work anyway but he's just like essentially it feels like i don't like the looks of you and somebody said something about you right so you're going in the brig yeah i remember um uh, cause you and I are both World's Fair fans. Uh, I, I had this, uh, uh, several books about the 1893 World's Fair. And there was a, that was in Chicago. And, uh, there was this breakdown of the security report for the year that the fair was, uh, was open. Well, two seasons within about a year. And, um, it was, it, it was something like, Oh, you know, let's let's make up a number. It's like twelve hundred people arrested for shoplifting or or gate jumping or or whatever it was. And then you got three hundred people arrested for public drunkenness or something like that. And then there is like some other statistic. It was like shifty or suspicious looking people. (laughs) Ten. They're just like, like like, these are just the people that they just like. eh, Yeah, they just look like they're up to no good. Wow. So we're just going to take them out anyway.
2: First yeah. of all, I'm surprised, I'm, well, I'm honestly surprised that it was only 10.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 again, I might be making up that number, though oh, okay. it was a significantly lower number than... You know, gate jumping or shoplifting, right. drunkenness or whatever, or public fights or whatever. It Do was. you think after yeah. the first
2: like few, somebody was like, "Seriously, you can't just keep doing that"? No.
0: <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe that that first five or ten was in like a week. Right. <laughs> they were just like, "Yeah, you can't keep doing this." Yeah.
2: Oddly enough, though, shoplifting went up quite a bit the following week. <laughs>
0: right. Right. We yeah. did it. Yeah. There's one other kind of fun little thing here. It's not really a, a discussion topic. It's not really a big point, but, uh, you know, Dax says that what's happened is not impossible, just extremely improbable. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reminded me of that, that old thing that you hear that saying that, well, in a city of eight million people, like New York, a, a one in a million coincidence happens eight times a day. So that, you know, things, things are not that, Impossible, even if they are improbable, it just has to do with your your perspective your your own experience, maybe the limits of your experience so eh, you know interesting that they played with that little little idea for a moment in the show.
1: Merriam-Webster describes LD50 as the amount of a toxic agent, such as a poison, virus, or radiation, that is sufficient to kill 50% of a population of animals, usually within a certain time. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy describes Merriam-Webster as a bunch of mindless jerks who will be the first ones killed when the LD50 of water is determined.
2: The end of the show. What were the chances we'd make it this far, John? What were the odds, would you say, that we would get to this bit in the show? This the show called... Well, right, we'll go ahead.
0: Oh, wait, wait was a rhetorical? Yeah, because, Yeah, pretty much. Uh, okay, because it happened. <laughs> so I'm going to say uh, <laughs> the, one. Yeah. The, the odds are one. <laughs> that that would happen because we're here we made it
2: yeah that is odd is it odd so yeah rivals it's weird actually because so much about this is so much about this episode is not about rivalry it's about it's about uh it's about odds it's about probability or improbability as the case may be but yeah, we're not talking about that i don't guess i guess we could though we should talk about the title
0: the the rival well well, you have rivals you have quark versus martis yes you have o'brien versus Bashir. You have a little bit of O'Brien versus himself,
2: Uh, you know? Yeah. You've also got, uh, you've of course got uh, Mardis versus um, Alcia. Did you say that already?
0: Yeah. No, 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 no. And Alcia and basically anybody who she can swindle. That's true. But uh, con
2: person versus con person. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not not people who go to conventions, but con artists, if you will. Anyway, so there's the title, uh, sort of dispensed with, disposed of, what have you. And now we get to the rest of it. The messages, morals, and meanings, and figuring out whether the whole thing stands the test of time. Uh, why don't we start with that one, John? Rivals. Does this episode hold up, as far as you're concerned?
0: Uh, <laughs> um. No. Yeah. No. It, it, but here's the thing. All right. So... It's not a well produced episode. And, and and this is the interesting thing I feel like whenever we get to this part of the show when when we decide uh it does it hold up mm-hmm. versus the morals, meanings, messages. Um From a technical standpoint, yeah, Star Trek's really not screwing anything up at this point. It's not like uh, we have bad special effects. It's not like, you know, dumb rookie mistakes are being made all the time. It's an expensive show to make, and things generally are humming along pretty well. So what I say when this is not a well-produced episode this time around, I'm mainly talking about the writing. And, And my assessment here is not out of step with how many of the people on the production felt about this show at this time or this episode at at the time. I just kind of read, okay, what did Ira think of it? What did Joe Minoski think? What did the director think? And there's a lot of people who are not totally on board with this one. I feel like the problems are that we're jumping back and forth to characters who aren't consequential to our main cast, mm-hmm. um, and we're not really invested in them. Sometimes that works, but in this case it doesn't. Um I saw the twist about Alcia coming right away. Again, we we both saw dirty rotten scoundrels that as soon as she was on screen, that's what I thought. I I, I thought of that movie. Um I was not invested in the science of what was going on. Um not that that was really a major thing here. Um Uh, just as a story it didn't add up for me it really didn't um now i i feel like i need to add this disclaimer here people who have written to us saying that we're not enjoying ds9 exactly the same way that they are enjoying ds9 um will probably be upset with me saying this so i feel like i have to repeat it again i think ds9 is an awesome show there are lousy episodes, though, just like there are lousy episodes of all of the Star Trek series. Sometimes those episodes are purely fun, like, say, a piece of the action, which really works just as being a piece of fun TV. Um, sometimes, like Move Along Home, it doesn't work to just be fun. And Apologies... To those of you who love that episode, I I think I was talking to one of the Trek geeks, or I I might have the story conflated. Somebody else who was telling me that they loved that episode because it felt like a camp 1960s Batman type of story, Mm -hmm. just uh, walking through the game. You know, cool. And and good on you for loving that. Um, But there are problems here. And a big part of that problem is Martis. Um And that's not a knock against Chris Sarandon. It's just that it's a lot of telling and not showing. We're told that LRNs are listeners. We're told that he should be treated with some suspicion, but he's just presented in a way that isn't dynamic or engaging to me. Um The converse of that is Whoopi Goldberg is Guinan. The, the listener, that being a, a character trait of hers, she nails that, and, and she's wonderful, and you feel it as soon as she is on screen. Um now, all that said, all the problems that I have with the episode, I think there are fun morals, meanings, and messages to talk about when we get there. Uh, but, but what about you, just as, as an episode here, as a slice of production of Star Trek, Ken.
2: What's weird to me is they've actually done some decent comedy writing with some not comedic actors. And Chris Sarandon is, I mean, he is fantastic as Humberdink in Mm -hmm. the princess bride. And there were times where he was delivering lines that I felt like he was doing the Humperdinck impersonation. I mean, you've got somebody here who can do a lot of really fun stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, He wasn't given a lot of fun stuff to do, unfortunately, but like I'd listen to his voice all day long. I mean, if I could talk like that, man, you know, (laughs) I mean, he was really cool. Right. Um, there was a there was a there was a potentially comedic part where things are falling apart around Martis's head which means things are falling apart for Rom as well but Rom can't stop talking to Martis about everything about his life that he hates right. so there's a potential for comedy about the fact that everybody wants to talk to the El-Aryan. but what we know from Gynen Ro Laren doesn't want to talk to Gynen she never wants to talk to Gynen But she always ends up talking to Guinan because Guinan is good. It's almost like something pheromonal with with Mardis, right? It's just like, you see, you meet this guy, you just want to talk to him. I mean, when when the when the widow shop owner starts talking to him, you understand why it's because he's doing it right. He's working that angle. He's not working that angle with the old guy in his cell. He doesn't care. He actually says that he says, I'm not listening. Okay, well, then why do we want to talk to this guy? I mean, there's so there's a bit of an inconsistency, a bit of a weirdness thing there. Although I'll be honest with you, I forgot that El Arian, um was what Guinan was. I thought it was funny. It's like, oh, he's a listener, Aryan. Ha ha! It's funny uh, the uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, uh, um, the other thing is, you said you weren't really invested in the science of this episode. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's because there wasn't any. Well,
0: <laughs> I, I wasn't invested in the idea that they had to have a scientific explanation for what was going on, which I, I realize you need to get there at some point. You have to solve the problem right. at some point. Right. But it, it just it, it was a layer of Star Trek technobabble that complicated and, and, and detracted from a story that was already sort of distracting.
2: Okay. Is there any such thing? Is there really any such thing as the law of probability?
0: Yeah, as a concept, sure.
2: As a concept, absolutely. As a physical law, though, that can be manipulated? N-
0: not, not that I'm aware
2: of. Okay. And,
0: and it is, and I, I had read somewhere that, uh, Lawrence Krauss actually got in touch with, uh, Andre, Andre Bormanis, the science advisor on this show, and a lot of Star Trek, um, saying that, uh, neutrinos can't Exist the way that they're describing them in the show. But apparently, many, many years later, there are some scientists who, who discovered some other property of matter, and they were like, oh, well, I guess we need to come up with some new kind of definition for a neutrino, because some of those would be rotating the opposite direction of these neutrinos. So... Who knows? But.
2: <laughs> but that's still not about being governed by the law of probability. No, I mean, no, 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 no. Right. No. So it's a bit ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, and, that, and, that's, yeah. and that's sort yeah. of the problem that I have. I mean, like, you talk about the infinite improbability drive in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what made that so amazing was it sort of played with this pretend science idea in the science fiction setting that was completely ridiculous. In comedy, you can sort of like, you know, turn a key like that and have people go, that is mind blowing because you're already, you're already geared up for expecting the unexpected in a way. Right. To have a commander in Starfleet go, something is messing with probability.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: that to yeah. me, that to me is sort of like, it, it felt like it, it kind of didn't work there. And then, of course, Quark trying to buy him off to leave at the end didn't work either. I think Quark would be perfectly happy if he came by a few weeks later and found the decimated corpse of Mardis laying there. Because this is the oh, guy yeah. who has risked yeah. the life of everybody on the ship. But he's going to pay this con man to leave. Right. Right. Mm, have a hard time with that. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But hey, that's that's just me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, other stuff because yeah. th- th- there are there are ideas expressed in this episode. Um, it, it, it's a sci-fi parable about greed, and it's also not a bad examination of the gambler's fallacy. You, you know, there's this idea about the the hot streak mm-hmm. um, that, that that it's a fallacy that there's not really such a thing. Though people, oh, maybe gamblers like to believe that there is such a thing. Um, so it was kind of fun to see them play with that. Um, I love, I love our introduction of Koss, the snoring alien. Mm-hmm. In the end, it all comes down to luck. He says right before he dies. Yes. <laughs> you know?
2: Which he actually seemed to greet as a, as a victory though.
0: I, I, he did. He did. So it was, there was something poetic about it, which is kind of, kind of, kind of fun, you know? Um, I, I, and it was it's Mardis who has the line, when you win, it makes you lucky, when you lose, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so luck really is a state of mind. But, uh, but but also be aware of alien gambling machines that enhance the effect, because those are just really, really mess with you. Um, and I, you know we, we still don't know how to turn those machines on or off, and, and we don't know what makes them work. Right. And we don't know who made them or if they're an expression of intelligence. Of so let's shoot them. Right.
2: I was actually amazed that that was what they decided to do. It was like, well, how does it work? Well, I don't know. Well, how do you turn it off? Well, it just kind of was working. It's like, well, let's blow it up and see what happens. That
0: is some I died in the wool. Captain Kirk, good old TOS style problem solving. If I ever saw it.
2: <laughs> in yeah. fairness, first, Kirk would have tried to talk and then turning itself off.
0: Mm, yeah, that's true.
2: And then that's he probably true. would have shot it. Yeah. The um, mouth, the only thing I have, and I know it's something that we've talked about before, it is, it is you have to look a gift horse in the mouth. You absolutely do. I don't know what this thing is. Well, let's make 10 of them and see what happens. In the 24th century, you can make things that can disintegrate people yeah you might want to find out if this will do that, maybe after a thousand wins, i mean maybe maybe it killed that guy the the alien, you know, maybe after a number of wins, you know whoever's touching it drops dead. That's the kind of thing you'd probably want to know if if your luck if your luck inexplicably seems to be going amazingly well with input from something else and you don't know what that input is or why, it might behoove you to ask the question <laughs> and maybe don't build ten more of the things. Uh, You know, in in the hopes that, oh, well, you know, 10 times the luck then, because certainly, ooh, how's this for an ending? Your luck could run out.
0: Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. The Roddenberry Podcast Network can be found at podcast.roddenberry.com. And when you go there, you'll find Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at War, Priority One, and The Trek Files. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit
2: trekmovie.com. Next week, The Alternate.
1: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at theory.com. Curiously, an edition of the Encyclopedia Galactica, which conveniently fell through a rift in the time-space continuum from 1,000 years in the future, describes Merriam-Webster as a bunch of mindless jerks who were the first ones killed. When the ALD-50 of water was determined. Oops. Spoilers. And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network.